Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 4th, 2016. This is episode 1758 of the Survival Podcast. And given that it's Monday, it is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your feedback. You send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You get that over to me with uh, TSPC in the subject line. Again, TSPC in the subject line. And uh, when you do that, I'll be uh, on the lookout for it and know that it's for the show. Best way to get your content screened is to give me your question, make your point, make your statement, whatever it is in one sentence or less. Then provide a link if there is one, and then give me your details. Trust me, if you summarize it that way, it'll be more likely to get through my screening. It's a volume thing. Uh, it's all it really is is how many emails I get a day and what it takes to uh, to be able to screen them. So let's tell you what we're going to talk about today with stuff that came in. Um, really diverse variety of topics today. First of all, we're going to talk about something I got a lot of emails on this morning uh, that broke, I think, yesterday. World leaders sheltering money. And... Uh, the Panama Papers, and boy, this is a hot topic, and it's going to be hot for a while. And I have a lot to say about this, even though I'm going to tell you I don't know exactly where we're going with it yet and how legitimate everything is or what have you. I'm the guy that never jumps the gun on anything, but I'm also going to tell you what you should be really mad about with this subject as a whole. And I'm going to talk about the hypocrisy of of the people that put laws in place to prevent you from you know putting your money somewhere other than where they can look at it, uh, the criminal activity that gets tied up in all this, but a fundamental fact that money goes where it's treated well, and it's your money that can't go there, and that's what you might really want to be upset about. Uh, moving on to a gardening topic, we're going to talk a little bit about sun chokes. I consider them one of the great survival crops of all time, and I'm going to give you my opinion of a resource I've given several times called Oikos Tree Crops, and why I think you might, if you want some sunchokes right now, you might be better off ordering them on Amazon. I'll tell you the full story behind that. Um, I'm going to talk about automation a little bit in a high-tech automation uh, location, a place that you might think would be immune from automation, and a new machine that came out that was going to change that, and it didn't really work. It kind of flopped, and automation's facing a setback, and maybe we don't have to be afraid of the rise of automation basically decimating our economy, or do we? I think we do. I think that just because something doesn't necessarily roll the first time it's rolled out doesn't mean it's not going to roll. We're going to talk about how to automate something in a positive way for yourself. How about improving your financial IQ? I'll give you a resource that'll put it almost on autopilot. You'll still have to do a little bit of work, but you won't forget about it, and you'll be able to become more financially astute over time. I'm going to give you a little update on a guy called The Humble Mechanic who started out here uh, listening to us and has built, put together his own business and just tell you how he's really killing it and how you can too. We're going to talk about... What do you do with a buttload of lemons? We've got a listener who's like happened into the ability to buy like tons and tons and tons of organic lemons, but you know they only last so long. So what do you do when you have that many kind of in a glut? Um, a new article's out, new uh, piece is out that says that millennials will be the generation that has the highest goal ever for retirement. Uh, to be able to retire comfortably, the average millennial today, between now and the time they retire, will need to build up a nest egg 
of $1.8 million. I was asked, do I think they really need that much? I'll tell you why the number might be more or a lot less, and both ways suck. Um, we're also going to have a little talk here toward the end of the show today about a mindset, the survival mindset in a particular way that I've never really thought about before. But it's what is happening versus why is it happening. And that's not as cut and dry as you might think. We're going to have a real good discussion on that. Got an MSB sale going, plant propagation sale going, and give you a new simple low-cost way, actually no-cost way to support the Survival Podcast. If you don't want to become a member or anything like that, but if you do business online anyway and you just would click a link or enter a URL before you do it, well... You can help what we're doing here without spending an extra penny at all. All of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two for you today. I have James Monroe and the crossing of the Delaware, and I have young George Washington resigns his commission again. That one's interesting, but I want to read the one on James Monroe because I have an interesting take on Alex's take. Alex Shrugged, of course, puts together the history segments. We take a look at these to get kind of a historical context into place. Like, you know, how, how are things working the way they are today, and how does it relate to what happened in the past? Kind of what Ed Wallace calls the backside of history. Anyway, in 1758, James Monroe and crossing the Delaware. If you notice your years, we're not quite up to the Delaware yet. Well, the future fifth president of the United States, James Monroe, is born in this year. He will win with 80% of the electoral vote, nearly a unanimous vote for a second term. He will also be the last president to have served as an officer during the American Revolution. Andrew Jackson will serve as a courier during the Revolution at 13 years of age. Hey, 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 just think about the next time you hear somebody whining and crying that's in their early 20s because they heard a word that they didn't like. Andrew Jackson served as a courier during the Revolution at 13 years of age. As a young man, Monroe will abandon his college study, sign up with the Virginia militia, and receive an officer's rank. He will march his regiment through a snowstorm to join, join General Washington for his famous crossing of the Delaware as part of a bold and successful raid on the Hessians and a battle of Trenton, New Jersey on Christmas night. Monroe will be wounded as he rushes to take the cannons with his men, As president, he will be known for the Monroe Doctrine, which in essence warns Europe that an attack on a sovereign country in the South or Central America will be considered an attack on the U.S., just like the NATO Treaty of the 20th century. My take by Alex Shrugged. If you look carefully at the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware in 1851, you can see James Madison holding the stars and stripes, a flag that did not exist at the time of the crossing. And this depiction of Washington does not reflect reality. It was raining miserably cold and dark during the crossing. The boat has problems, too. Washington was using a type of boat with high sides, so he certainly could have been stand, could, could not have been standing, or could have been standing, but not in a boat like the one in the painting. Another example of the inaccuracy is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Some of the people in the famous painting hadn't even been elected to Congress by the July, by July 4th, 1776. Perhaps these historical distortions are forgivable. There was no photographs, no audio recordings. They tended to look back at the revolution with nostalgia, and their children looked back with more than a little hero worship. Yeah, here's what it makes me think of. There is a fantastic miniseries that was on HBO, and it's available, I think, on Netflix now, called John Adams. And it's like the first two episodes and the last episodes were the best to me. Kind of the middle wasn't so great. The, the first two... I kind of feel like every member of our Congress and Senate 
and the president should be locked in a room and forced with their heads strapped and eyes held open to watch those first two episodes uh, once a year, just to remind them of what they're shitting on, just to be blunt. Um, but it's the last episode where Adams and Jefferson are quite aged and they've had their feuds, but they've come to peace with each other. And they're, they begin their letter writing as friends. And they actually both die on the 4th of July on the same day. Um, but what this actually makes me think of is there's a scene where they show Adams that, that, that painting of uh, July 4th, 1776, of all of the founders around the Constitution. And what he says is, no, this is very, very bad history. We were scared. We were terrified. We were committing treason. Most of us had already signed and, and, and left. Many of these people weren't there. It's, it's a pretty interesting, um, somewhat historically accurate telling of the American, early American history. And it's definitely done well enough that it's uh, worth watching for the entertainment value alone. My take by Jack Spirico. With that, before I get into your uh, emails, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Okay, guys, so my lead story today is the Panama Papers. This is something that's probably blowing up your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed right now. If you turn on uh, any of the uh, the lettered news companies, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, etc., anytime today and wait 10 minutes, I'm sure you'll hear about pieces and parts of it. This is dragging a lot of people in, but what is the Panama Papers? Uh, well... This is very coordinated. This has been done by a, a large group of journalists working together. This is one of the biggest um, information leaks of all time. Um, it's also all going according to plan right now. I guess is the way I would put it. It's hard to even explain because we only know what we know so far. But there's a ton of very well-produced YouTube videos out about this thing that broke yesterday. Okay? Um That means that the people producing those videos were part of this before it was released. So let me play you about a one-minute video um, of one of these videos that gives you a summary of what this is. Come back, give you some thoughts, and then I got a little bit longer of a video to play the audio for on you that talks about how deep some of the criminal activity in this thing goes. Over 100 news agencies all over the world are disclosing the Panama Papers tonight at the exact same time. This will be a huge hit for several large figures in world sports, politics, and economy. Names like Lionel Messi, Vladimir Putin, and the Prime Minister of Iceland are already leaked. So what are the Panama Papers? The Panama Papers include approximately 11.5 million documents more than the combined total of the WikiLeaks Cablegate, Offshore Leaks, 
LuxLeaks, and SwissLeaks. The data primarily is comprised of emails, PDF files, photo files, and more. It covers a period spanning from the 1970s to the spring of 2016. Read more at the link in the description. So, yeah, I, I went to YouTube this morning to, to initially, what I thought I would do is find, you know, a, a Fox News piece or a CNN piece to play the way the media is covering this for you. And I didn't find anything, even though I heard it on Fox News this morning when I turned it on to torture myself. Uh, it's part of the work that I do to make sure I am covering current events for you guys and how they apply to your, your preparedness lifestyle. Um, YouTube is devoid right now as of uh, about 12.30 in the afternoon today. Um, segments by them that I can find anyway. And even on like the web, their websites and stuff, they don't really, they're not running the, the video pieces yet. But I was kind of blown away at the very high level produced, high production value videos by various producers who are clearly part of this investigative piece. Um, stuff that would have taken at least a few days, at least a few days to put together. I'm going to play one such uh, video for you now. So this is about four minutes long, and uh, I'll come back with kind of where I am with this right now, what I think we can expect to see coming out of it in the future. And I bet you I'm going to cover this differently than any of the talk radio people you're going to hear talk about it this week. Over the past three years, Syria's air force has rained death on more than 21,000 civilians. Their bodies ripped apart by exploding barrel bombs. Missiles dropped on homes, businesses, bus stops, even hospitals. These war crimes have been well documented. Not so the part played by the shadowy world of offshore finance. Behind the scenes, companies using offshore tax havens were accused of supplying fuel to the Syrian Air Force. In 2014, multiple governments, including the UK and US, issued bans on doing business with these companies. But now, a new global investigation has revealed that a Panamanian firm helped these companies operate as attacks in Syria continued. That firm, Mossack Fonseca, is a key player in a sprawling, secretive industry that the world's rich and powerful use to hide assets and skirt rules by setting up front companies in far-flung jurisdictions. More than 300 journalists trawled through millions of leaked records from Mossack Fonseca to expose an alarming list of clients involved in bribery, arms deals, tax evasion, financial fraud and drug trafficking. Behind the invoices, emails and paper trails are real victims. In Russia, businessmen kidnapped orphan girls as young as 13, raped them, then sold them to others for sex. After this rape, I was aching all over. I started very much fearing men. I felt as though they wanted only one thing, only sex with me. When I was taken into a foster home, I felt as though my foster father would rape me if I'm left alone with him. One of the alleged ringleaders was a client of Mossack Fonseca's. When the firm discovered their client was a pedophile, they decided they were not legally obliged to report his offshore business activities to authorities. In Uganda, a company that wanted to sell a prospective oil field paid Mossack Fonseca to help it avoid $400 million in taxes. It was simple paperwork. The company's address was changed from one tax haven to another. 
In a country where one in three people live on less than $1.25 a day, $400 million represents more than the government's annual health budget. Uganda spent years in court trying to force the company to pay its taxes. Meanwhile, hospitals in the shadow of the oil field lacked funds for even the most basic equipment. Patients slept on floors. They were asked to bring their own medical supplies, like sterile gloves and cotton balls. It was a surprise to me because I expected all this equipment to be at the health centre. And all these things are not there. Nurses say we cannot work on you. At times, we are forced to leave and return home unattended to. Some women have lost their lives and babies. Uganda ranks among the worst 10 countries in the world for high maternal, newborn and child mortality rates due to a lack of access to good health care. The offshore industry has recently come under fire for enabling dubious activities like these. But firms like Mossack Fonseca have helped clients continue to operate behind a veil of secrecy. Until this shadowy world is held accountable, international criminals will keep doing business, tax dollars will be dodged, and bombs will continue to fall. Okay, that one clearly has some geopolitical agendas to it and all, but... As of right now, anyway, I can't counter any of the claims that this information is contained within all of these documents, and it probably is. My bigger point here, though, is if you go, and I have the link to that video for you in the show notes, if you go watch that video, it's done with animations and things like that. It's something that unless the only thing you do is sit around making videos like that, you've got a week into it or more, uh, and probably far more than one or two people working on it to put it together. And again... Um, My point there isn't anything like, ooh, look what they're doing. It's all you know behind the scenes or something. Because they're saying it was behind the scenes. It was a very, very in-depth project involving a, a, a ton of investigative journalists. My, my one thing that I'm sitting here going really about is this, there were this many people involved with something and there was no leaks that it was going to be leaked prior to it actually being leaked. In other words, the more people you involve in something like this, the harder it is to keep it quiet until the time you choose to release it. So, you know, how would have, how would these journalists have been recruited into something like this? Or was it really pretty open, but no one really thought much of it until they actually came out and said, this is what we have. I, I don't really know. So something bugs me about the whole way this works. You got 40 years worth of documents being released at one time by supposedly thousands of journalists and everything was perfectly contained even though stuff like this was being done. I'm not saying it's untrue. I'm saying whenever I see anything in the media this big, I ask myself, what is their agenda for it? What do they want to accomplish with it even if it's being reported accurately, I'm looking for the agenda. Because let me tell you what my initial response to it, before I really understood how deep this was going, was was like, you know, there's uh, 138, uh, you know, high-level politicians uh, named in there, 13 heads of state. They're all sheltering money in these offshore accounts. My response to that was, and my wife's response was, of course they are. Of, I mean, they, they, there's nothing about that. That surprises me at all. Of course they are. Absolutely, of course they are. And then the reporting that I saw in mainstream media was, 
Well, sometimes this can be for legitimate reasons, and in many of these other nations, having these offshore accounts is illegal, but not in America, not in Europe. Okay, so what you have to do is, in, 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 and the reason we're, we're going to do this one today, even though I don't have enough information to do it the way I normally would, is you have to start carving out the pieces of something like this with critical thinking. And you start to have to look at this and say to yourself, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There might be a whole bunch of douchebaggery going on here. Maybe money was funneled around to get past sanctions on Syria, blowing people up with, with barrel bombs. Maybe some of this money was you know, tra tra trafficked around to enable basically sex slave trading and things like that. Maybe those things, in fact, we know those things happen, and we know that various forms of sheltering money, including offshore accounts, are used to do those things. Then you've got the whole thing that a lot of people just want to protect their money, okay? And it's outrageous that, like, the, the president of Iceland or prime minister of Iceland would dare to protect his money. See, here's where I want to tell you the part you should actually be pissed off about. That anybody can tell you where you can and cannot put your money. In, in, in spite of all of the evil they're going to drag out of this, because there's going to be plenty of evil, I think this is going to be one of the biggest things to hit in a long time, and for a long time to come. But in the end, shouldn't you be able to put your money where you want it? But Jack, all the rich people, shut up! Shut up for five seconds! And answer the question I asked you, right? Shouldn't you be able to put your money where you want it? And that's the point. That all of these laws and regulations to present, prevent offshore keeping of your money and stuff like that is not to protect you. It's not to help you. It's to control you. Because the people that actually have the money to do the evil things that the laws are supposed to prevent from doing the evil things have been doing them for 40 years while they want to put you in prison if you set up a $50,000 account down in the Bahamas just so you have some money that's tax-free and away from them. Okay? That, I mean, that's the what you should actually be upset about here first is that anybody can tell you what form and where you can keep your property solely for the purpose of preventing you from preventing them from stealing a percentage of it whenever the hell they feel like it because the majority said it's okay. That's the number one thing you should be upset about. Because let me tell you what I think the agenda with this thing is going to be. Yes, they'll bring down some pretty big people. Yes, they'll probably throw a person or two as a token into prison over this. But what they're going to do is they're going to make a case to the people of Europe and the people of North America, we need more laws. We need more capital controls. We need to protect the world from this. We need to make other nations fall in line and do this too. Look at the horrible things. Look at this girl. This girl would have never been raped if it wasn't for an offshore account. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't mean to sound heartless or anything like that, but how many people are raped around the world every day and has nothing to do with, with an offshore account? Do, do you really think it's offshore accounts that enable rape? Now, in this case, enabled the profit from, from rape and sex trading, if we're to believe that. And it may very well be true. But I'm telling you, something stinks in all of this. Not that the stuff's not true that's going to come out of it. The way it was done, the way it's coordinated, the way it's coming out, something stinks in this. 
Something smells really, really bad. There's a bad, bad cheese or fish in Denmark or what have you. Okay? I, I really feel this is going to be used to squash liberty and freedom economically around the world. And I believe that it may work this way. This might sound conspiratorial. I'm totally spitballing here. I'm not saying this is what's going on, but I can totally see this, this happening. The governments of the world are starting to experiment with blockchain-type technology, uh, government-type Bitcoin, okay? Bank of England coming out with one. Just last week, Sam, we're going to do this, and then this whole thing drops a week later. Hold on. See where this goes. Now, what the government versions or the central bank versions of Bitcoin do is take away all the things that make Bitcoin great, like telling the government to go piss off, not having them able to inflate or deflate the monetary supply, not having them able to see everything you're doing unless you want them to. Basically, we strip all the things that make Bitcoin great and just turn it to an electronic currency. And we give the central banks the authority to inflate and deflate the currency at will, just like they do now, but in a blockchain where everything's public or as public as the controlling authority wants it to be, and the controlling authority, the central banks, is who reports to people like the IRS and the Department of Treasury. So I can, and then of course Bitcoin's evil because as bad as offshore banking is, man, Silk Road and what Bitcoin. So watch this possibly play out. The big push will be coming out of this to digitize currency in all the developed nations of the world and simultaneously to try to curtail, destroy, regulate away private currencies like Bitcoin, which I don't think they can do, but to so villainize it that no one will want to talk about it, to push it into the shadows, etc., as they tried the first time. Or, screw it, we'll just let Bitcoin alone, And we'll just go after getting all of this because the majority of people are going to use the government's money. And I said last week, the government wants you using electronic money because then they can find every freaking penny. And if it's done in a blockchain, they literally can just pull up you and see every penny you sent and got back. Especially if they're the controlling authority of the blockchain, right? Of the pseudo-blockchain. So... That's right, and I'm going to leave this one go for today, but just as you watch this one play out, just know there's, there's something here that's not being said and won't be blatantly said, and it'll take a while for the true agenda to show up. Let's take another one. So after coming off of something that heavy and with that many unanswered questions, and I thought it would be cool to just do something simple, short, and fun that would uh, give you something you could do if you wanted to produce food for yourself. So I want to talk to you today, uh, a real quick uh, discussion about a product called the Sunchoke, also known as Jerusalem Artichoke. These are in the Helanthus family. This is uh, the same family as sunflowers, and they look a lot like a sunflower when they grow. They Some varieties grow four or five feet. Some of them grow up over 12 feet. Uh, and the full flower and top part is you don't really do anything with it. It's the tubers, the roots underneath that grow into these nodules. And uh, they are an incredibly productive, almost completely carefree plant. Uh, the first time I ever grew any, I put them in a 4-foot by 10-foot bed. Somebody sent me four of them. I cut those four uh, into three pieces each. So I put 12 of them in the ground, and we harvested five five-gallon buckets that first year on my property. Now, it was a good prepared bed and all, but still, you got to think about my property. That's pretty fantastic. Well... 
uh, recently I did a show where I talked about different plants and things like that, and I mentioned them, and I mentioned some other plants. And I said one of the places you can get some really unique stuff is a place called Oikos Tree Crops. Well, when I recommend something, and I did kind of caution you, like they take a long time to ship sometimes, their customer service isn't that good, but it, it's gotten worse. And, and when I give you a resource, if, it, if it's not... If it's not up to snuff for me and I see it decline, even if I give you a warning, I want to give you an update so that you don't overvalue them. So here's my update. About four weeks went by after I ordered these uh, sunchokes from Moikos. So I emailed them. I said, um, get a little late in the year uh, for me. This is a pretty simple order. It's just tubers. Uh, can you give me an estimated date that I would get my order? You know, When do you think it's going to ship? 48 hours later, I get an email from some girl in their customer non-service department who says, when your order ships, you'll get a, a shipping notice. Are there any other questions that I can answer for you? I responded, well, given as you didn't answer my question, uh, I would still like to know when you think my order might ship. Because all you've told me is when it happens, I'll know. And I, I'd kind of like to, to know, do I need to source something somewhere else because... It's getting late in the year. I'm living in Texas, you know, and I said, so could you please give me an estimate as to when you will ship my product? And I got no response to it. We did a work with Jack weekend Saturday, had some great folks over here. We had a great time, got a lot of stuff done, moved a fence and did some other things. And um, this guy, David, has been to all three of them this year, says, you know what? I ordered those same ones because they looked cool. And... Uh, I got in touch with them last week because I've also waited several weeks now. They can't even confirm whether or not they have my order. So this is what I'm going to say about Oikos tree crops. O-I-K-O-S tree crops. Okay, Oikos tree crops. I've gotten some interesting things from them that I can't get anywhere else. I can't say that I'll never give them business again, but if I can get it anywhere else and I don't really, really want it, I will order it from somebody else. Their customer service is horrible. It's horrible, and um, it amazes me in this day and age that a company can have such bad customer service because, you know, here I am telling 150,000 people right now that your customer service sucks and, and saying, hey, by the way, um, in looking for another source, I found a better price on the same product with a couple days shipping. Amazon.com has uh, one of the Sunchoke varieties that I wanted to get from these guys, and I might be pronouncing this wrong, but it's Red Fusu Sunchokes. Red Fusu Sunchokes. And what I like about the, the Fusu varieties is they're a lot less bumpy and knobby, so they peel a little easier, they hold a little less dirt, and they look kind of cool. So um, I have a link to where you can get a pound of Red Fusu uh, Sunchokes uh, for 15 bucks on Amazon. With $5 shipping. I think I sent the Oikos people for an order of two, uh, and I think they were the white variety of this same type, uh, like 40 bucks by the time it was all said and done with. And I knew I could get them for less. But I like to do business with small companies. And sometimes you'll want to do business with small companies, but it just doesn't pay to do business with small companies. So if you're interested in planting these this year, I'm recommending Amazon. You can find a lot of other varieties of them, but the red ones I do have a link directly to you, for you in the show notes. And I really recommend that those of you that are looking to 
really bulk up on the amount of production, look at planning some of these, you know, set up a dedicated bed for them. They will take over the whole bed, absolutely. Uh, give them some deep, rich soil and make sure they stay moist, and they're fantastic. Yeah, when the cold weather comes, let them go ahead and get hit by frost and die back, and then start digging them up. Uh, they're sweeter when that happens. All of the sugars in the plant drops into the, the tubers. These are fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Use them sort of like potatoes. Uh, they're somewhere between a potato and a water chestnut in flavor, and uh, just thought I'd throw that one in for you today. And, again, Oikos only do business, not the, not the yogurt people, Oikos Tree Crops, only do business with them if they have something you absolutely really, really want and you can't get it somewhere else. Until perhaps they'll find out about this and they'll figure out what the hell's wrong and they'll fix it. Because when a customer asks you a question and you don't answer it and say, do you have any other questions, it's, it's really off-putting. I'll just leave it at that. Let's take another one. So the next one is like totally different than the first two, right? Um, I've talked a lot about how automation is going to replace so many jobs in the future, including jobs like that you wouldn't think of. Like it's, you know, right now they're making a big deal because New York raised the minimum wage. McDonald's is putting in more kiosks. McDonald's has been putting in kiosks for years. The minimum wage thing with the fast food companies has absolutely nothing to do with the kiosks in fast food restaurants. Okay, look at the turnover in fast food restaurants. You're dealing, and the lower you go, you get down to McDonald's and Burger King, etc., you're dealing with the absolute bottom level of people willing to take a job or young people that want to use that kind of job for what it's supposed to be for. Seriously, and I know some of you might be franchise owners, whatever, you might be pissed at me, but then you know I'm telling you the truth. The, the biggest struggle, minimum wage doesn't mean jack shit, The biggest struggle anybody with a business like that will ever have is keeping it staffed. So if I can eliminate staffing needs, even if it costs me more, I'm better off. But automation is surplanting people at all different levels. And one of the things that really shocked people was the concept that maybe you could even replace a very highly skilled position like an anesthesiologist. And that's actually been cited as an example of, hey, if you think your job's immune, don't be so sure. Well... It seems like that has taken a setback. This is on uh, technologyreview.com. In recent years, economists and technologists have warned us that technology will take over many jobs or parts of jobs that are done today by human workers. But just because a machine can take over a task doesn't mean that it will catch on. A machine launched last year that makes it unnecessary for an anesthesiologist to attend some medical procedures is being pulled from the market after poor sales. The Sedesis machine made by Johnson & Johnson had already had its wings clipped After opposition from the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the machine can administer a sedative propofol while monitoring vital signs to ensure the patient is anesthetized to the right degree, meaning only a nurse, not an anesthesiologist, need be present. But the professional group said the idea of a machine replacing human expertise was dangerous. The group dropped its opposition after Johnson Johnson agreed to limit the machine's use to certain procedures, such as colonoscopies. The Washington Post, Post reported last year that hospitals using the Sedesis machine, patients were able to leave sooner, and that not needing an anesthesiologist present saved considerable costs. It's not clear how much impact the history of animosity with so many anesthesiologists had on dis disappointing sales, but it probably didn't help. 
Johnson & Johnson's decision comes as a restructuring of its medical device business. That part of the company is also collaborating with Alphabet subsidiary Virility on medical automation and robotics through a joint venture called Verb Surgical. No products have been detailed yet, but the company's focus seems to be on technology that assists doctors rather than replace them, a distinction that may make products easier to bring to market. Okay, so what people are saying is see, Jack, and I got this from several people, see, it's not going to happen. People aren't going to, they just, not. well, here's the thing. It's not because it didn't work. It's not because it didn't work. Here's what it was supposed to do. Do a better job, get patients home faster, and save money. It did all three of them perfectly. It did all three of them perfectly. So Johnson & Johnson pulled it from the market. Well, when something's not making a profit, if you're not stupid, you pull it from the market. You think they're done with this? You think this is going to go away? No, they're going to retool and they're going to come back with tools that are more designed to assist doctors. Okay, let me explain to you what's going on on all levels with automation so that you'll understand it. Number one, a war is being fought to keep it away. We don't want it. It will ruin lives of people. It will cost jobs, blah, blah, blah. Unions are against it. And by the way, just so you know, the American whatever it is of anesthesiologists, right, Uh, the American Society of Anesthesiologists is a labor union. The American Medical, Associ Medical Association is a labor union. Okay, so there's a resistance here, and the anesthesiologists who this will replace want to tell you it's dangerous. Um, yeah, and you screwing up is dangerous too. You screwing up is dangerous too. So the question is, who screws up more? Who's more likely to screw up with me, a machine or a person? This is the one thing that places like this, they do have the edge. If a machine screws up, fixing it, knowing what to do when you have made an error, when you have made a mistake, that's, that's the place you want an experienced person on call or there right beside you when that goes on. So that, that's the one place I think people do have the advantage over machines for now. But, I mean, it also depends on the surgery. Like, If you just want to put somebody under so they can have something like a colonoscopy, which is what they were talking about here, it's much less critical than if you're doing, you know, cardiothoracic surgery or something like that. So you're going to see, see seeing this stuff come back, 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 back. And what all, what they're doing at all levels, from the fast food place to the medical office, is they're training the customer to be comfortable with the technology. This is why a lot of times now you go into a fast food restaurant. And there's a great big line of kiosks, and there's people behind the cash register. And you see certain people go to the kiosk, and some people go to the cash register. And that's because people are not yet comfortable ordering their own stuff through a kiosk, even though it's actually better in many ways, because the whole menu's right there for you. You can find everything. You can read it. You're not squinting your eyes and trying to read the fine print so they crammed everything into the menu behind the counter. The light's glaring on it. There's people behind you in a hurry. You can actually look at the screen in front of you. You can... Guys, the, the, the whole thing's going to be done in an app eventually. You're not even going to have a kiosk. When you walk in, there'll be a, a you know, there'll be a, a Bluetooth handshake or a code word or the, you'll be have the, you know, the Panera Bread app or whatever. And you walk in, the location will recognize that you're at the location and you'll just order it. You can order in your car on the way there. People are doing this already, but they're getting people comfortable with it. And I have even seen places where they have employees Helping people use the kiosk. Training their replacement, the customer themselves. 
So all of this is about making people comfortable. And at the same time, the whole, you know, $15 minimum wage you know, is to create a villain when what's coming comes anyway. Because this is not about a $15 an hour minimum wage. And if you believe that, you need to extract your head from the ass of the mainstream media. Okay? Seriously. Stop letting the TV tell you what to think. Stop letting it tell you what to believe. This is a natural progression of technology. And nothing's going to make it go away. You could set the minimum wage at $3 an hour. And you could find the same quality of people right now that you have at a McDonald's that would be willing to take $3 an hour. And the fast food people are still going to go to freaking automation because it works better and it's less trouble. It's less prone to injury and illness and not coming in and coming to work drunk and coming to work high. There's no way you'll make this ever go away. Stop believing in bullshit. You might as well believe the tooth fairy is going to bring you a quarter if your tooth falls out. I mean, seriously, it's time for America to grow up and stop just buying into bullshit. The fast food workers, folks, the fast food workers never protested. There was no such thing as a fast food workers protest. It was all a lie. They were paid people, hired protesters, and there wasn't thousands of them. There was a several dozen of them. There's even a picture of one of the, these huge protests in New York City, okay? And you, you, you look at the, the, the cropped image that they showed on TV and the reporters there and they got a barricade set up and shit. And it looks like it's, you know, hundreds of people deep and it's the whole road's blocked off and no one can get by. And then they show a full size image of it. And like people are just walking past it. There's, you know, maybe 40 to 60 people in the protest. They got a barricade up. It's only for the camera. There's literally people walking past on both sides, back and forth. Not even paying attention to what's going on. And this is the key. The fast food workers protested. Really? I'm still waiting. I've been waiting a year and a half now for one person to email me and say, Jack, I tried to buy McDuggets or a Big Mac or a Whopper or whatever the hell you tried to buy. And I couldn't get one because the store was shut down because they were on strike. They didn't strike. None of this was real. It's all fake. It's all phony. Jacking the minimum wage up is, is not what this is about. It's what happens when you jack the minimum wage up. The base labor rates of many union and specifically government union positions are tied to minimum wage. The primary beneficiary of the minimum wage going to $15 in government installations is people who are already making fifty dollars to $60,000 a year getting a raise. That's what it's about. That's the truth. Stop buying into bullshit and don't think this is going to go away. It's not going to go away. All they're doing is getting you comfortable with it right now. Next up, um, something positive you can do with automation. Um, one of the greatest automation tools of our time is email. As a marketer, as a learner, as an information seeker, what you can do with email that can be automated is amazing. Something as simple as, you know, you can go to Google and do a news search and then refine your news search so it gives you exactly the type of results that you're looking for on a particular topic, including many obscure topics that you would miss otherwise. And then you can create an email alert. And then Google will send you an email every time news stories pop up that, that change that results of the news search, which is on a topical, timely, and updated daily thing. So that's one example of it. 
Well, another thing you can do, as I've always been telling you guys for a long time now, to improve your financial IQ. And that one of the things you can do to do that is simply learn a new financial term every day. Well, I got an email here, and this email came from, I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due, so let me find it real quick because now I've closed that window. Um, this is from Corey in Oregon. He says, you recently said that we listeners should learn a new financial term every day so we're better prepared to handle our money. I believe it was episode 1749 on financial preparedness. Anyway, I just wanted to share that at investopedia.com, you can sign up to receive term of the day email that gives you definition and examples. I was doing something else, and I found it and thought, this is exactly what Jack was talking about. Below is one of the emails for the term of the day derivative. Anyway, I thought it was pretty cool, and I'd like to try to share it with the other members of the TSP community. Take care, Jack, Corey, in Oregon. Derivative. Let me read, just give you an idea of what these emails are like. A derivative is a security with a price that is dependent upon or derived from one or more underlying assets. The derivative itself is a contract between two or more parties based upon the asset or assets. Its value is determined by fluctuations in the underlying asset. The most common underlying assets include stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, interest rates, and market indexes. And then there's the whole thing breaking it down, and you can get a better summary of it. And there's actually more than I read, because some of you are going, it's a security with a price that is dependent upon or derived from one or more underlying assets. And you're going, there's other words in there I don't know. That's how this works, though. So if you if you get a term of the day, and it has a word that you don't understand in its own definition, then you've got to look up that word, and then all of a sudden it all starts to cascade. And... You know, I just read that to you. Most of you probably get the gist of it or what have you. And even if you just read it every day like that, what did that take? 60 seconds? Spend two to three minutes a day learning one thing about economics. And think of how much better you'll understand money in a year. That's 365 days. And it's really not that much time. And it's time you can spend, you know, not arguing with your friend about the next president because what you think about that and what he thinks about that isn't going to decide who the next president is going to be. But how well you understand money is going to have a dramatic effect on your life. And we'll even talk more about that later in today's show. But again, Investopedia, term of the day. Now, the way it works is a little bit weird. You go to Investopedia.com. And you see up in the right-hand corner, I think it says newsletters. You click on that, and there's a whole shitload of them. And you select the ones you want, you stick your email address, and you say sign up. Let me give you a little bit of Jack advice. There's a little checkbox underneath there. It says, please include me in periodic messages from selected partners. No, unselect that. And after you subscribe to that one or any of the other ones you want, they'll come to a page with all kinds of crap they want you to subscribe to. No, never trust people like this that want to sell you all the extra stuff. But it's a legitimately run newsletter, and you can select just the stuff you want. So look at the ones you want, get them, but the term of the day is the first one. And I have a link in the show notes that goes straight to that page for you today, so you can sign up for that if you want to start increasing your financial IQ. Thanks very much for sending me that one. That's a great tool for people to use. Next email is just a quick shout-out to Charles, the humble mechanic. Uh, it says, hey, Jack, it's become the custom. I'm emailing you from an airplane. I'm heading to San Francisco this time. I'll be sitting in on a class for BMW technicians, but meeting with a company that I'm working out to contract a teaching job. This once-a-quarter teaching gig may be the opportunity to allow me to step away from the car dealership world. And the best part is my wife is finally starting to realize that all the work that I have put in is finally starting to pay off. 
She sees the income and the opportunity that I've created and gets that I don't have to go to a job. I can do this. Or more accurately, we can do this. Uh, we've mapped out a one-year plan for ourselves for me to step away and do what I want. We still have plenty of fees to repay for our daughter's adoption, so it's not time just yet. Thanks for all you do, and thanks to the wonderful TSP community, Charles, at HumbleMechanic.com. Um, this guy's doing some cool stuff. He really is. And you know what? He's just being himself. He's doing exactly what I said you could do. He took what he loves, which is being a mechanic, and the knowledge that he has from it, and he's built an entire small company with it. He's built notoriety. This is giving him leverage. Now he has an opportunity for a, a teaching job. And he may be able to set up several things like that, completely replace his income, and then build an income better than he has in a J-O-B right now because he decided to do it. And there's people now that look at him and they have no idea that he, you know, was basically inspired to do this out of TSP and he's, you know, a YouTube celebrity or whatever you want to call him. Wow, it must be great. Well, he was a guy just like you, folks, just like every single person out there listening to this show every day. The just the only difference was when he heard you can do this, he said, "Yeah, you know what? I can and I'm going to try." And I'm not saying that everybody tries is going to be successful, but I guarantee you a way to not be successful is not to try. I guarantee you that. So, hey, Charles, just a quick shout-out to you. Keep kicking ass, man. Keep doing it. Keep killing it. Uh, let's take another one. Next up, let's talk about food for a minute and what we can do to uh, to store some food. Um, this comes from Diane, and it's actually a question for Erica Strauss. And I'm sure that Erica might have some good ideas here. Um, but... You know, Erica has her questions for the month, and it would be a long time before Erica would get around to answering this one for next month's stuff. So I figured I'd go ahead and take this one because I have two great ideas for uh, Diane, and one is actually the long-term storage idea, and the other one is just something you do when you have lemons that I think everybody will like. So it says, uh, I have access to a large amount of organic lemons for a limited time. How can I store and preserve them without juicing them? I don't want to take them. Uh, just to let them spoil before I can use them up. Thanks, Diane, in California. Okay, the, the easiest way to make use of lemons or any citrus that you have in huge abundance um, is to dehydrate them. You know, they're only going to last so long, and even if you juice them, the juice is only going to last long. Now, you could juice them and concentrate the juice with freeze concentration and make your own juice concentrate. You, you could do that, and then they could be used whenever you want, but... Dehydration is so simple. So all you want to do is you slice your lemons uh, at about a quarter inch, and if you have a like a uh, like a meat slicer, man, you can speed that up, and you get them all uniform the same size. Throw them in an Excalibur or your dehydrator of choice, and dehydrate them. Since they're lemons, you don't have to put lemon juice on them to keep them from oxidizing, and you you, you dehydrate them till they're like a, a lightweight chip. And you put them in jars with an O2 absorber, and they'll store damn near forever. Uh, th this is one product I had a bunch of that I came into a long time ago. We still are using them. And when I say a long time ago, I mean years. And I had a whole bunch of the Phenelic uh, USDA food-grade line paint cans that I filled up with them. And I just threw them in there and put an O2 absorber and smacked the lid on. And uh, whenever we need more, I just take them out. And I've got them, just a stack of them. So what do you do with a dehydrated lemon? Well, you make lemonade. Um, all you do is you take your dehydrated lemons and you throw them into water 
and you sweeten with sugar, and you kind of figure out how many to use and how many times you use them before you toss them away. And the other thing you want to do with them is once they've been in there for a while, if you haven't drank all the lemonade, you take them out before the pith starts to make everything bitter. So that's, that's, that's the easy answer. And I'm sure there's lots of other things you can do with dehydrated lemons, but that's, that's what I would do to store them. Now, while you're dealing with all these lemons, You need to learn about something, and you need to make it for yourself. If you're a person that likes an adult beverage, it's called limoncello. A bottle of this stuff's like 30 bucks or more at the store. Uh, it's like this super, oh my God, Italian, amazing thing, and it's so simple. It is absolutely simple. All you do is zest lemon, and you can look up different recipes and all, but I think the last time I made it, um, I made a quart. And I think I zested two large lemons. And then I put the lemon zest into the quart jar, and I filled the quart jar with vodka. High-proof vodka, like 100-proof. And you can go higher if you want to, depending on what you want for a final product. And you put the lid on it, and they say, let it set for 21 days exactly, or the world will explode. Uh, generally, it will extract almost all of the lemony goodness out of the zest in like 24 hours. And then you strain the lemon... Um, zest off, squeeze it, because there's a lot of stuff will come out when you squeeze it. Like think when you're making tea and you squeeze the tea bag. And then add simple syrup to that at whatever ratio to come up with whatever, whatever proof you want. Whatever is, simple syrup is 50% water, 50% sugar. So if you end up with, let's say, you won't end up with a quart, but let's say you did end up with a quart. If you added a half a quart of simple syrup to it, you would end up Um, cutting your, your alcohol proof by about a quarter, so you'd end up at about 75 proof. It's really that simple. And you could let it stay higher, but then you're going to have less sweet and more alcohol burn, and you can bring it down more and have more sweet. However, I mean, you're, you're, you're the boss. You're in control. And that's just a little addition of all. And you can do that with many citrus. I mean, you can do it with lime. You can do it with uh, oranges. But lemon is something amazing. And it's so simple to do. And it's another thing that you can give yourself as a skill to make this amazing liqueur. And uh, it's not something to go get, you know, drunk on. This is something, this is a sipping thing. But it's, uh, you take that once it's made, you put it in the freezer. Uh, wow. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how much of that you're going to make with all these lemons. But while you're, you're dealing with them all, do at least a little bit of that. Another thing that I would say... For all your citrus, guys, especially whenever you have organic citrus and you're using it to make, you know, I use limes to make ceviche, which is with fish and, and shellfish and stuff like that. And uh, we, use, we use citrus quite a bit. I use it in my mead making and what have you. If you're ever doing something where you're not using the zest, get a zester, zest it, you know, and, and, and dry it out. It works really good in a dehydrator, but you can just, like, set it out to dry and then store it in a jar. Because the, the stuff you buy, the lemon zest, orange zest, the shit you buy in a store, is not zest. It's peel, which means it has all the bitter pith with it. There's so much flavor in lemon. And I know, like, oh, he's doing cooking again. It's supposed to be this. Listen, feeding yourself high-quality stuff is a huge survival topic. Uh, this is And the, the zest, once it's dried, is, like, infinitely storable. 
And it's a huge source of vitamin C. It has all the oils and the flavors of the citrus in it. It has medicinal value, flavor value, long-term storability. It's everything you could want. And the problem with many people in the prepping world is, well, that's not manly enough. Well, okay, you starve to death while you sit there with your bullets in a bunker and no one's coming. Or you can have a really great life now and be able to feed yourself and protect yourself if the shit hits the fan. You decide for yourself what you really want in life. So I got this email from Kelly, and what it says is, do you really think millennials need this much? And I can tell it's like, Kelly doesn't want to believe it. Maybe Kelly's a millennial um, and doesn't want to hear it, but or has millennial children and really doesn't want to hear it. But uh, my short answer is, uh-huh, uh, most likely, and if not, it might be worse, okay, in either direction. So let's go ahead with it. This is on USA Today. Millennials' new retirement number, 1.8 million or more. A recent study put together by, anyway, reading the article, uh, millennials have more than enough financial worries. Now they can add two million more to their list. That's how much many may need to save to retire. Older millennials, those born in the early 1980s, will need about 1.8 million salted away to maintain their standard of leaving in retirement, while younger millennials, those born in the late 90s, will need upwards of 2.5 million, according to various studies, estimates, uh, estimates, and experts. To be fair, that equation makes two big assumptions. One, it assumes they need to generate 30 to 40,000 in annual income from their nest eggs in today's dollars, and two, it assumes a 2% inflation rate which is currently the Federal Reserve's target rate. Think about that. That's the Federal Reserve's goal, 2% inflation per year. Okay. So why do millennials, a.k.a. Gen Y, need so much set aside? First, there is the issue of inflation. Assuming a 2% inflation rate, a $1 million nest egg today would be worth about $530,000 in, in, in 32 years, which is when, when millennials now in their mid-30s are expected to retire and roughly 386,000 in 48 years when the youngest millennials are expected to call it quits. What does this mean? Millennials who are behind the eight ball will have to start saving aggressively now if they aspire to have the same standard of living as retirement as they did when working. Why? One, they are unlikely to have a pension plan as did their grandparents, plus their Social Security benefits are likely to be less generous than today's, and if all of that wasn't reason enough, millennials are projected to live even longer than current retirees. The oldest millennials, assuming they have no money set aside today and that they earn 5% on their investments, will need to stock away $2,000 a month for 32 years to accumulate a $1.8 million nest egg. And the youngest millennials would need to save 1000 a month for 48 years to accumulate $2.4 million. Okay. Um, there's longer parts of the article if you want to read it, but this is the same old, same old, sort of. Uh, over and over again, uh, the investment industry tells you, you know, the best time to start saving was yesterday, and if you haven't done so, then the best time to start saving is today. By the way, it was really 10 years, 20 years ago, depending on your age, right? But you got to save, you got to save, you got to save. you got to put your money in our casino, and if you don't do it and risk it, then you're going to be really screwed, and you're, you're not going to have enough money in your retirement to maintain your standard of living. So as to the question, do I really think millennials need uh, a $1.8 million nest egg and other, in order to retire? Uh, the answer is it probably won't be enough if things go the way that is considered success in, in the world. Um, if the goal 
is to just with your retirement maintain your standard of living as though you were still working. Now, here's a couple of places we have to start diverging from myth into reality or from mythology into reality. So the myth is that re people who, who save their pennies when they retire maintain their standard of living. So they live just like they were still working. And the, the reality is that almost never happens. That almost never happens. They don't maintain their standard of living. And, and, and that says they're going to generate $30,000 to $40,000 a year. $30,000 to $40,000 a year in today's dollars. So that's also saying that the successful person, think about this, capable of saving, let's say, $1,000 to $2,000 a month, is doing that on a $40,000 income. Now, it's inflation-adjusted, so that's basically saying you'll have enough money to live like you have $40,000 a year in today's money 30 to 40 years from now. Okay, So we'll just give that. Okay, but then... <laughs> If you're only at a standard of living that is afforded to you by a $40,000 income, you do not have $1,000 to $2,000 put away. And the standard of living in America today for somebody with a $40,000 income ain't terrible, but it ain't that great. It ain't the silver-haired people walking down the beach that Fidelity Investments uses to get you to trust their financial liar. I mean, advisor. No, I meant liar. That's what I meant, right? Okay. So there's a lot going on here when we, when we read something like this. Okay, first and foremost, always look for the agenda. Well, the agenda is the financial industry is head over heels trying to get millennials to invest money because they're not investing. That, that, that's the agenda to scare millennials into playing in the casino, okay? That doesn't mean there's not validity to the reality that millennials are going to need an awful lot of money to retire. But so are you. And, and I'll ask you this. Do you think that a person can comfortably and safely retire today with a million dollars? With a million dollars. If you want to generate $40,000 a year, let's say, in your retirement safely, with no risk of loss, is a million dollars enough today. Well, one-year CDs are paying a whopping 1.25%. That's about the safest money you can put away without locking it up for, you know, long term, so you can have them renewing at one year in, a, you know, one, two, and three years in a ladder and then be taking money from that. But, you know, how much money do you generate at 1.25% of a million dollars. Well, 12,500 bucks. So, I mean, if you wanted to use CDs as your, your way to earn money in retirement, generating $40,000, being completely safe, you'd need a little under $4 million dollars right now. I know, I'll go to government bonds. Oh, great. Well, uh, a one-year government bond as of today is paying 0.59%. 0.59%. There you go. The place that you've been able to get between 3% and 5% uh, in the last several years, which is where the majority of my money has been until very recently, has been in grade A dividend-producing blue-chip stocks. That's been, you know, since since the the beginning of the recovery in 2009, and they call the recovery, I told you the false recovery, uh, I said way back then that, you know, this was a time to harvest dividends. And we went into dividend-producing stocks, we made 4% to 6% just on dividends. Um, but that's a risk play. A younger person, and that's understanding the market and knowing when the hell to get out of the market. 
So right now, you can't safely produce $40,000 a year with a million dollars. So, I mean, there's so many things that are unknown here as to what it would take because I remember in the 1980s when you could get you know CDs at like 8% and bank interest rates on civil savings accounts were 4.5%, and you could get government bonds at 4% to 6%. That was the 1980s. So a lot of people were using those as base numbers to plan safe retirement. And you see what they've done with all of these bailouts and all of this, this, this quantitative easing and, and artificially low interest rates, what they've done. They've scared all the money that's supposed to be safe right now into the casino. So here's, here's where millennials may not need a million, eight, two million, two and a half million to retire. The global economy goes into a massive recession, creating a multi-decade deflation, which is the most doomsday economic prediction I could give you. Everybody's waiting for runaway inflation. Inflation's the plan. Yes, runaway inflation would be bad. I'm not saying it wouldn't, but inflation is the plan. That's the goal. The goal of the Federal Reserve is to inflate the currency in upfront liar's numbers by 2%, back-end fake uh, back end real numbers that they hide you can learn with shadow stats in the neighborhood of, of three to six percent okay and their their ultimate ultimate doomsday for the Federal Reserve for the powers that be is not that inflation hits ten percent a year that's not the worst thing that can happen to them it's a deflation of two to three percent which will cascade into five to ten percent deflation in the next year if it happens. And we're not just talking about the gross domestic product going down being a recession. We're actually talking about true, systemic, currency-wide deflation. How ah, that can't happen, Jack. Yes, it can. The only thing necessary to cause deflation of the currency is the population as a whole to curtail spending sufficiently. That's it. Unlike inflation, which has many other ways that it can be coaxed into existence. Deflation is not really under the power of a central bank. It's under the power of the spender. Remember remember what deflation is. It's the increasing of the power of money. It seems like a good thing. But it's not a good thing for the person that's in debt. Now, what are the millennials carrying? Massive debt. Massive debt. A deflationary economy for me is not necessarily good, but it's not bad. I have very little debt. The only debt I have is my home. That's it. I have no other debt. I haven't had it since, well, since I started this show in 2008. We have not carried any consumer debt. We have a lease on the vehicle. I've explained the finances behind that before. I don't look at it as debt. I look at it as what it's costing me to use the vehicle while I have it. I mean, and it's it's so inconsequential versus our savings, our investments, etc., that it's, it's, it's meaningless. And it's also got an end of term. Right, if we get to a point where like we don't want a lease anymore, there's the, the longest lease we would ever enter in is three years. We'd have to enter into it, and it have to be doomsday the next day to deal with it for two for for you know two years and three hundred and sixty four days. Which I think if we were approaching that, we'd see it. and We wouldn't do it. Okay. So for me and for many of you that are living a, a very debt free lifestyle and living below your means, it have been amassing uh, significant 
components that provide what you need in your life for you and setting up resiliency, deflation could actually be good except for the whole world around you is going to go to shit if it happens. So in a true deflationary economy where interest rates not only return to something that's reasonable, like, you know, 4 or 5% on savings, but you end up with interest rates more like the 1970s where interest rates on a mortgage were 18%, but interest rates on a savings account were in the 8% range. Government bonds are paying 8%. Then, 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 and the cost of everything is less than how much does a millennial need to retire. This almost sounds like a bad joke. It doesn't matter because they won't have it. In other words, that generation, as far as retirement, is screwed. They're screwed. Social Security will fail by the time the millennials are retiring. Not might fail, will fail. They, they just will. Maybe the oldest millennials... It was just getting shittier amounts of benefits out of SSI, but like you young people, you 20 somethings, you're screwed. I'm just, I'm the, like the, the, the young side of Generation X, by the way. Okay, guys, just so you know, I, I just barely made it out from, from the, the whole millennial Gen Y thing. Okay. I really did. Or not Gen Y. What is it? The, I guess the millennials. No, see, I just looked it up. I thought that was wrong. They were lumping in Gen Y with the millennials. And Gen Y is the generation between my generation And the millennials. Gen Y is you guys that are 30-somethings right now. The millennials are all these people that were born like after 82. And about 20 years thereafter, right? That's the millennials. Y was the folks that were born after me. Gen X, my generation, we, we were the people that were born between like the 60s and the 70s. Like 65 to like 75. And, and maybe even all, you could make the case up to the 80s. And so I'm, I was born in 72. So I'm the, the, one of the younger people in Gen X, I guess. But maybe not really, okay? I mean, this is all getting kind of muddy, isn't it? But what I'm saying is if you're in your 40s, let's just throw the generations out. If you're in your 40s, the odds are you'll get Social Security. It probably won't do what you thought it would have done 10 years ago, but it'll be there. If you're in your 50s, you're probably going to get exactly what you were told you were going to get. And if you're older than that, stop worrying about it. When they say the politicians are going to take it away from you because you're fine, quit crying, quit bellyaching, you're going to be the last of the group to get your money. You people that are already on Social Security, don't even pay attention to the TV. You made it. You got your piece of the Ponzi. It's going to be okay. I'm not putting you down. It is your money coming back to you, but the whole thing's a Ponzi scheme. You got out unscathed. Good for you. Okay? If you're in your 30s, you're going to get screwed. If you're in your 20s, you're going to get screwed hard. If you're a teenager, you're going to get screwed so hard, you're not going to get nothing. That's the future of Social Security. And that's, that's the fact, and that's reality. So how much do you need to save? You don't really know. That's the truth. You really, really don't know how much you're going to have to save. So the, the approach here is the problem. The approach is save X and you'll be okay in the future. Well, there's a problem with that. It, it has zero pieces of lifestyle design as its component parts. Instead of saying... You need this much to retire comfortably at an age that you may never reach because you could die early or you might work longer. What we should be telling people today, not just young people, but all people, is design a life that gives you quality of life on the lowest amount of money possible 
and then that gives you the greatest buffer possible. But you'll never hear that because that doesn't help scare you into putting money into their casinos. So there's that one wrapped up. Our last email of the day comes from Tom, and Tom says, Mindset, what's, what is happening versus why is this happening? He says, I'd like to hear your perspective on different ways people approach analyzing a situation. The what is happening approach seems to be based more in reality. It is what it is, so deal with it. Okay. The why is it happening approach seems to be either mental masturbation or victim thinking. This can be applied to situational awareness, finances, business, disasters, personal relationships, etc. Shouldn't we all just stay grounded in what's happening? Reasoning. Thanks, MSB member, well watcher, Tom. Okay, well watcher Tom, I have this response to you. Yes and completely no at the same time. You're totally right and you're totally wrong. Okay, let's let's look at it from a, a standpoint of where you're absolutely 100% right. So you're in a situation. Someone starts hurting people and is going to try to hurt you, possibly even kill you, steal from you, and your response is, why is this happening to me? Victim response. It, you're probably headed for the worst possible result in a bad situation you could have. You're probably like to end up really hurt, really dead, traumatized for the rest of your life, even if you survive, because... You're absolutely right there. At that point, it is, this is what's happening. How do I deal with it? That is exactly the mental state you need to be in. You're in a shopping mall. People start screaming. You hear explosions. People are running in panic. You have no time to be thinking about why is this happening from a victim standpoint. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? It doesn't matter why at that point. What matters is identify the threat, identify avenues of egress, get the hell out of there, who's with you, who can you help, who can't you help, stay alive. Stay alive. And try to keep as many people alive as you can. If you can gain control of the situation, take a leadership role, help people out of doors, something like that, great. If you can't, then you got to get away from the people you're trying to help because they'll kill you. They'll run you over and kill you. And if you sit there and worry about why is this happening, you're screwed. There was just a huge disaster. Your home was flooded. You're sitting in a FEMA shelter. Why is this happening to me? Not good. Okay, You can see exactly what Tom's saying. All right. Finances and economics. Um, stock market is crashing. Why is this happening to me? My investments are going down. You should see that it's happening and protect your wealth. Yeah, okay, fine. All right. But... The reality is when we look at the long term, like we just evaluated the millennials, we need to be asking why this is happening. The longer you have in time to react to the situation, the more you get the opportunity to examine the why that goes along with the what so that you can develop the best response to it. Here's what I mean. Somebody comes into a building and starts shooting. There's a door. You can run for the door. When you run from the door, it turns out it was a coordinated attack, and they have somebody waiting for people to come out the door, and you get shot and you die. Okay. You, you, you didn't have time to figure out if the door was a place to go. If you weren't armed, returning fire wasn't an option. 
Or if you are armed with a handgun and there's five guys with AK-47 shooting the whole place up, you need to get to a point where you have relative safety so you can return fire. You don't just stand up and start shooting. They're going to cut you down. Okay, So you have to make those immediate decisions based on what's happening. It's very possible that you could be pushed into a situation that's actually worse or you still don't win. You don't have time. If you did have time, though, wouldn't it be great? So think about how you have four guys with AK-47s in a building and a group of soldiers or a SWAT team decides to go in and raid them. Now they're going to take their time and ask, why are they there? Where is everything? How do we deal with it? And there's a place where the two kind of, they're, they're, one's more important than the other, they start to get equal, and then the other one takes over. And I think if we're going to design our lives, it has to be a combination of what's happening and why it's happening. But the why, you're absolutely, this is what I said, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, you're sort of right, and then you're absolutely wrong. So you're absolutely wrong in, in saying that we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't ask the why question. But when you're sort of right is, Even when we have time to look at the why, we have to look at the why constructively. We have to look at it very, very constructively. And what I mean by that is if you're a millennial right now, this is a perfect tie-in to the last segment. And no, I didn't put them in this order because of that. Again, when I filter email, it's amazing the synchronicity that comes in from the audience. All just fell in this way from the email. Okay, so if you're a millennial right now, you're thinking, God, I'm screwed. Jack just explained to me how I'm screwed. I didn't say that you were screwed. I said if you rely on the system as it's designed to be relied on, you're screwed. Like, by the way, all the people in retirement right now that did the same thing are to various degrees screwed. Now, the people that did really well financially and put away a lot of money, they're living that lifestyle that, that, that all of the financial advisory companies like American Express and you know Edward Jones and all used to sell you the dream, but that's, a, that's like 2%. Most of the people that just put their money away and just expected that it would work out, they're living on what they call fixed incomes now, and they're, you know, they're below what they expected to be. Okay? So you could be that way. But I didn't say you had to be. What did I actually say? I said you need to figure out how to build a resilient lifestyle because you have all these years ahead of you so that you'll need as little as possible and whatever you have in surplus of that is buffer. And many of you didn't hear me say that. Even though I promise you right now, if you rewind, you'll hear me say almost those exact words. But all you heard was the part where you were screwed. This is what Tom's talking about. If you sit there and say, why is it this hard? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening is a very unproductive mental thought. So I said he's 100% right. Okay, here's where you're sort of right, sort of wrong. If you, if you actually have time and you examine why. Well, why is this the case? Well, this is the case because planned inflation is the way forward, because interest rates are artificially low, because wages today are about the same as they were 15 years ago, even though expenses have been rising at 2% you know, over and over again. And many of you in that group have put yourself into fine, uh, huge financial debt for education where that debt's been climbing way faster than inflation and the value of the degree's been going. These are all the whys. So then you can take all those whys, couple them with the what, and then you can plan your approach. Well, what do I do about this? 
If I understand, because what is now, why tells me what to expect in the future. So now I need to say, okay, enough of this stupidity where I just do whatever they say I'm supposed to do or I don't pay attention at all. Because that's pretty much that's what people do today. They either believe the system and they say, okay, I'm going to do exactly what they say to do. Or they say, nothing I can do about it anyway. I might as well just enjoy myself and go out to bars and chase girls. Or whatever it is for you, right? Okay, so there's another option. There's an option where I say, okay, where am I at in life? Uh, and maybe if I'm 30 or 25, really worrying about my retirement years is not what I need to be doing. No. What I need to be doing is asking myself, what's happening? Why is it happening? And then the most important part, what does that mean to me? And what do I do to deal with it? So I have to ask that, what do I do to deal with it very, very fast in an acute situation? I have to make a decision now or I'm going to die. I have to make a decision now or I'm going to lose money. I have to make a decision now or my company's going to go bust. I have to take a risk. Fine. That's the place for what's happening. What do I do? I've got no time. The longer I have in time, the more I can look at the why and the more thought I can put into the what do I do. And this is not something that's being taught to people at all anymore. And it's certainly not being taught to the generation that needs to hear it most. And no matter what they call you, that's you guys that are teenagers up to about 30 years of age. You guys need to be taught this. Stop trying to mimic the success of not my generation, not the people just a little older than you, but two generations ago. Millennials today are being told to define success by living not like their parents, but their grandparents. Or their parents' grandparents. Buy a house, save up, retire, draw Social Security plus your savings. You won't have a pension. You have your own pension today. We call that a 401k. And you live the rest of your life sitting on your ass in a rocket chair, maintaining your quality of life. And ignoring the fact that we all get old, eventually we all get sick, and we all end up without the quality of life, even if we have the money. So we have to think more about resiliency. But again, resiliency doesn't scare you into investing in the casino. And if we ask why, instead of just what, we come to that conclusion. But if we don't ask the why as well, So it's not the question, why is this happening, is the problem. It's the angle from which it's asked. Why is this happening to me is almost always bad. Because it's not just happening to you. Even if it seems very personal, you get a cancer diagnosis. Why is this happening to me? It happens to millions of people every year. Wouldn't it be more productive before you have cancer to do what we did with looking at some cancer prevention strategies with the expert counsel a week ago? Say, why is there so much cancer? Not just, oh, cancer's happening, so I need to be prepared to have it. You know, I have a one in three chance or whatever it is of dealing with it, so I should be prepared. I should have a cancer insurance program. That's just the what only thinking. This is a why thinking is, okay, 
there's a, a, a certain segment of society that genetically has a predisposition for certain cancers, and they're going to get them. And if that shit happens to me, I'm going to be in a what is happening, what do I do about it situation acutely. That's, that's just what it is. Can't sit around and worry about it. I'll give myself worry cancer then, which, which, which might even lead to real cancer. So that, I'm just going to take that piece and put it on the shelf and say, I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does, I'm prepared for the worst. I'm going to deal with it. But the why is, what about everybody else? What about the fact that there's more cancers today and more can higher cancer rates than any time in history? And don't lie to us and say, because we diagnose it more accurately. Shut up. Okay. Why? Sugar, processed foods. So the why of the what leads me to the what I should do. I need to eliminate those things from my diet. Now, does that mean I won't get cancer? Absolutely not. Does it mean that I'm less likely to get cancer? I can't say that because I don't have the medical qualifications to do, but I think the preponderance of the evidence would lead me to believe for myself that yes, it does. That one of the reasons we have so much cancer is things like smoking. Okay, so then I should not smoke. See? And there's all other, like if you just start going down that road to why, You'll find all these things, all these behaviors that you either should or should not engage in. And that doesn't mean you're going to live a life of a prude or a hermit, but it might mean that you, you don't do this, don't do that, curtail this, reduce that, and decide for yourself. We can do that with our finances, right? We can do that with our businesses. We can do that with our situational awareness. So the very things Tom brings up to make his case, make his case, and then yet are untrue, but it all depends on how. How do we ask the question, why is this happening? And when are we asking that why question? When we should be reacting to the what? Or when we have time to figure out how to avoid the what? My thoughts on that one. Now, one thing you can definitely do to improve your situation is to save money. And I'm going to point out two ways you can save money today, and one is a way you can generate money. So first of all, I have the MSB, or Member Support Brigade, on sale for $25 for your first year. This is for new customers only, people that are going to sign up today or tomorrow or any time between now and I believe it's midnight Monday is when I cut the cut off for next week. The discount code is PLANT. You can use that by using the form on the website. Go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And at the bottom, you can either sign up with PayPal online or you can sign up with a form. It'll say pay by mail, check, whatever. And if you're paying by you know cash, check, uh, otherwise, just write plan on the form and include 25 versus 50 bucks. So that'll save you money on the MSB. And the MSB is how I pay the bills around here. It takes the cost of the MSB down to about $0.09 cents an episode. So if you think this episode was worth $0.09 cents and you're not a member yet, consider joining. Then you get discounts on all the things that we're talking about building a resilient lifestyle with. Long-term storage food, the tactical, the practical, guns, guards, everything in between. So that saves you money. Okay, now, the other thing that's on sale right now is the Permaethos Plant Propagation Course, and that's selling for $250 versus $350. That course teaches you how to print money with trees and bushes and vines. That's, and I'm dead serious when I say that because as soon as you have land that you can plant, you should be planting it, and then you find out trees, bushes, and vines actually cost money. Well, you can buy one or two varieties that you really want lots of, take the plant propagation course, and learn to produce them. And if it's a plant that costs 25 bucks or a tree that costs 25 bucks a piece and you make 10, that course just paid for itself. And here's the cool thing. Even though it's on sale for everybody, if you're an MSB member, you get an additional 10% off. 
That makes it $225. So if you're not an MSB member and you want to learn to propagate plants, you join the MSB right now with the sale at $25. You end up right back to $250, effectively getting your MSB for free and getting all those other discounts for free. Just thought I'd throw that in there today. And, you know, that is a way to support the show. And I wanted to throw in, we've been talking about this a little bit lately, but one way you can support my show and the work that I do without actually spending a penny more than you're going to spend anyway, those of you that buy stuff on Amazon, if you go through one of my affiliate links, well, somebody emailed me and said, hey, I'd be happy to buy everything I buy through your affiliate link, but I use my iPhone and I use the Amazon app. Is there any way that can be automated? And I'm like, I don't, I don't think there is. Because once you're using their app, right, they don't need an affiliate anymore. But if you're willing to log in on your PC or your device or whatever to Amazon, then as long as you go through one of my affiliate links, then I would get you know a, a small commission for that, four to eight percent of your purchase, depending on what it is and how well the month's gone, and that can add up to a few hundred bucks pretty easy. So, uh, number one, that's some of you guys that have websites and stuff. Consider setting stuff up like this for your audience. And they can help you. But one thing you learn with Amazon real quick is they're on to the whole idea of signing up as your own affiliate and buying from yourself. They don't let you do that. The sales show up, but no commission ever comes through them. So you can still help me, and frankly, I'd help you if you sent me your link. But I wanted to make this really, really easy. Uh, so I set up a short domain that you can just type in and bookmark on your devices. And if whenever you're going to buy from Amazon, you use that link, you'll be buying from our Amazon link. And that link is tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z for Amazon, tspaz.com. So if you just stick that in your phone or your, your computer or whatever and use that when you shop on Amazon, it, you literally will spend absolutely not a penny more and you can help support the show. So I wanted to throw that in there too. Uh, I'll figure out a more formal way to roll that out, but I thought I'd just put that out there today. tspaz.com, bookmark that, shop Amazon through TSP, and buy what you were going to buy anyway and, and help the show. With that, let's wrap up today. I have a, an interesting song. This song was huge when it was released in 1969. It's looking to the future and quite a dystopian future. It's called 2525, and it touches on some of the concerns that we touch on here all the time. Uh, future uh, that can have a lot of amazing things in it, but yet be quite bleak. It's a Monday. It's kind of a curveball to throw this at you today. I promise to give you something different for the song of the day tomorrow that'll be a little bit more inspirational or happier, what have you. Just today, I just thought of this song while I was finishing up and thought, I need to play this for you guys. And I also know this, there's a whole bunch of you that will have never heard this song before. And those of you that have heard this song before will be like, oh yeah. I remember that. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In the year 25-25, if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may fall. Is in the pill you took today. 
Yesterday 